Hello and welcome to Altar of a Cowgirl. My name is Forrest Greenwell, and today we will be reading week three of The Artist's Way, which is about recovering a sense of power. So, if you're new here, welcome. Pretty much everyone is new here. (laughs) But you might not be new to me and my work. Um, So just to tap in uh, to what's kind of going on here in the podcast right now is a week-by-week guide through The Artist's Way. So right now I'm, I'm guiding a portal for the 12-week process of the our first Artist's Way book. Or I guess the only Artist's Way book, but the first of many Artist's Way-esque books that Julia Cameron has written. Um, and this is for the people who have a hard time reading, who have already read it a hundred times and need a new way to digest it. Um, for those who are interested in the little tidbits that I have to say as someone who's read it and done it many times. And also for myself to be able to receive it in a new way by reading it aloud. So thank you, Julia Cameron, for (laughs) writing this book decades ago and allowing us to revel in its magic. Once again, I'm Forrest Greenwell, I'm a poet, tarot reader, mystic guide, artist, creative, and I just really enjoy the process of figuring things out and sharing while we're talking. Not for the sake of hearing my own voice, but but there is something sacred about the vibrations of speaking and receiving. So thanks for being here and receiving my speaking. (laughs) Alright. Recovering a sense of power. A little tidbit that comes with this. says, This week may find you dealing with unaccustomed bursts of energy and sharp peaks of anger, joy, and grief. You are coming into your power as the illusory hold of your previously accepted limits is shaken. You will be asked to consciously experiment with spiritual open-mindedness. So week three is funny because a lot of people get to week three and then they, they drop out. It's, it is intense, right? Um, I like to think of things as like mind, body, spirit and kind of working through them. And here, you know, we have this idea of spiritual openness. So we start with um, we start with recovering a sense of safety, which is very body. And then recovering a sense of self, which is uh, a very body. Um, and then recovering a sense of power, which is very spiritual and energetic. So we get that mind, body, spirit, and then we're kind of like, oh shit, this is powerful. What do I do? Where do I go from here? Um, and this is where uh, it's my job to guide you through. <sighs> so, let's dive in. So the first subtitle in Recovering a Sense of Power is Anger. <laughs> yeah. So Julia Cameron writes, Anger is fuel. We feel it and we want to do something, hit someone, break something, throw a fit, smash a fist into the wall, tell those bastards. But we are nice people. And what we do with our anger is stuff it, deny it, bury it, block it, hide it, lie about it, medicate it, muffle it, ignore it. We do everything but listen to it. Anger is meant to be listened to. Anger is a voice, a shout, a plea, a demand. Anger is meant to be respected. Why? Because anger 
is a map. Anger shows us what our boundaries are. Anger shows us where we want to go. Let's us see where we've been and lets us know when we haven't liked it. Anger points the way, not just the finger. In the recovery of a blocked artist, anger is a sign of health. Anger is meant to be acted upon. It is not meant to be acted out. Anger is meant to be acted upon. It is not meant to be acted out. (sighs) Anger points the direction. We are meant to use anger as fuel to take the actions we need to move where our anger points us. With a little thought, we can usually translate the message that our anger is sending us. Blast him. I could make a better film than that. This anger says you want to make movies, and you need to learn how. I can't believe that I had this play idea for a play three years ago, and she's gone and written it. This anger says stop procrastinating. Ideas don't get opening nights. Finished plays do. Start writing. That's my strategy he's using. This is incredible. I've been ripped off. I knew I should have pulled this material together and copyrighted it. This anger says, it's time to take your own ideas seriously enough to treat them well. When we feel anger, we are often very angry that we feel anger. Damn, anger. It tells us we can't get away with our old life any longer. It tells us that old life is dying. It tells us we are being reborn and birthing hurts. The hurt makes us angry. Anger is the firestorm that signals the death of our old life. Anger is the fuel that propels us into our new one. Anger is a tool, not a master. Anger is meant to be tapped into and drawn upon. Used properly, anger is useful. Sloth, apathy, and despair are the enemy. Anger does not. Anger is our friend, not a nice friend. Not a gentle friend, but a very, very loyal friend. And it will always tell us when we've been betrayed. It will always tell us when we have betrayed ourselves. It will always tell us that it is time to act in our own best interest. Anger is not the action itself. It is action's invitation. Before we move on to the next little part, just to break there because, wow, anger. Yeah. So I think that when we're talking about feelings, um, something that I really kind of want to come back to is that feelings as we experience them and as we are able to and have to experience them through the body are chemicals it's chemicals running through our bloodstream so they're very powerful very potent very important and it's also part of the pharmacy of our body right which (laughs) i will eventually make an episode on but to say the least we kind of have all of the the things the elements the minerals that we need to make all the things within ourselves we just need to learn how and so anger uh, as a chemical is giving us information that is telling us okay so what what do i want to do with this where do i go from here right the kind of premise of this this section of this chapter of finding a sense of power is relaying to us that anger is made up of 
hormones and chemicals. Those hormones and chemicals are made up of the same energy that everything else is made up of. How is it that we can transmute this into energy, right? When we get into apathy, sloth, despair, that, that's when energy isn't moving. That's when we get stagnancy. That's when we kind of get these calcified feelings, whether it's in our body or emotionally in our mind. Um, and that's part of what this process is, right? It's, it's stirring those things up and kind of like, it's like putting, you know, dry clay back into the bucket with water to soften it again. Um, it's a pottery reference, if you were wondering, <laughs> or I guess like a clay reference, but, um, yeah, I just feel like this emphasis on anger being healthy and being your friend is really something that we need to hone in on, especially this idea of being nice, um, I really hate this idea that we have to be nice. Nice is the, the small talk of personality traits, and you'll hear me say that many, many more times, but we don't need to be nice. You know, nice is not about being considerate or kind. Nice is a social conformity. Uh, we literally developed niceness to be safe in the world. Um, and so anger can often also present itself as a hyperfixation on something. You know, um, this kind of swirling around a thing trying to move it or make way with it sort of how water will pool around a rock as it forms the river um, but if the river is trying too hard to move the rock then it's not paying attention to creating shorelines and creating a space for itself to continue going um, it's, it becomes about removing the rock so I think that's sort of also what this anger chapter or subchapter is saying in the sense of power it's saying how is it that we utilize these things how is it that we allow ourselves to gather pool around it find our energy um and, and use anger to be something that propels us beyond and to help us find information because that's what it is right our, our feelings are little bits of information that are getting sent through our bloodstream from our brain to the rest of our body so that we have reactions that we have happenstances that bring us into the know of what's going on so that we can be more powerful because we have more information right that's that's my that's my my in-between chapter on how anger is <laughs> really useful <laughs> all right our next chapter is synchronicity answered prayers are scary they imply responsibility you asked for it, and now that you've got it, what are you going to do? Why else the cautionary phrase, watch out what you pray for, you might just get it. Answered prayers deliver us back to our own hands. This is not comfortable. We find it easier to accept them as examples of synchronicity. A woman admits to a buried dream of acting. At dinner the next night, she sits beside a man who teaches beginning actors. A writer acknowledges a dream to go to film school. A single exploratory phone call puts him in touch with a professor who knows and admires his work and promises him that the last available slot is now his. A woman is thinking about going back to school and opens her mail to find a letter requesting her application from the very school she was thinking about going to. A woman wonders how to rent a rare film she has never seen. She finds it at her neighborhood bookstore two days later. A business person who has secretly written for years vows to buy themselves a professional writer for a prognosis of their talent. 
The next night, over a pool table, they meet a writer who becomes their mentor and then the collaborator on several successful books. It is my experience that we are much more afraid that there might be a god than we are that there might not be. Incidents like those above happen to us, and yet we dismiss them as sheer coincidence. People talk about how dreadful it would be if there was no god, and I think such talk is hooey. Most of us are a lot more comfortable feeling we're not being watched too closely. And if God, by which we do not necessarily mean a single-pointed Christian concept, but an all-powerful and all-knowing force, does not exist, well then, we're all off the hook, aren't we? There's no divine retribution, no divine consolation. And if the whole experience stinks, oh well, what did you expect? The question of expectations interests me. There's no God, or if that God is disinterested in our own puny affairs then everything can roll along as always, and we can feel quite justified in declaring certain things impossible, other things unfair. If God, or the lack of God, is responsible for the state of the world, then we can easily wax cynical and resign ourselves to apathy. What's the use? Why try changing anything? Well, this is the use. If there is a responsive, creative force that does hear us and act on our belief, then we may really be able to do some things. The jig, in short, is up. God knows that sky's the limit, and anyone honest will tell you that possibility is far more frightening than impossibility, that freedom is far more terrifying than any prison. If we do, in fact, have to deal with a force beyond ourselves that involves itself in our lives, then we may have to move into action on those previously impossible dreams. Life is what we make of it. Whether we conceive of an inner god force or an other outer god doesn't matter. Relying on that force does. Ask and you shall receive. Knock and it shall be opened to you. These words are among the more unpleasant ones ascribed to Jesus Christ. They suggest the possibility of scientific method. Ask, experiment, and see what happens. Record the results. Is it any wonder that we discount answered prayers? We call it coincidence. We call it luck. We call it anything but what it is. The hand of God or good, activated by our own hand when we act in behalf of our truest dreams, when we commit to our own soul. Even the most timid life contains such moments of commitment. I will get a new love seat after all, and then I found the perfect one. It was the strangest thing. I was at my aunt Bernice's, and her neighbor was having a garage sale, and she had this wonderful love seat, and her new husband was allergic to it. In outsized lives, such moments stand in bass relief, large as Mount Rushmore, Lewis and Clark headed west. Isaac Dennison took off for Africa. And we all have our Africas, those dark romantic notions that call to our deepest selves. When we answer that call, when we commit to it, we set in motion the principle that C.G. Jung, Young, Jung, <laughs> C.G. Jung, Carl, it's Carl Jung, Forrest. <laughs> the principle that Carl Jung dubbed synchronicity, loosely defined as fortuitous intermeshing of events. Back in the 60s, we call it serendipity. 
but whatever you choose to call it once you begin your creative recovery, you may be startled to find it cropping up everywhere. Don't be surprised if you try to discount it. It can be a very threatening concept. Although Jung's paper on synchronicity was a cornerstone of thought, and even many Jungians prefer to believe it was a short of side issue, a sort of side issue, they dismiss it, like his interest in the Yejing, as an oddity, nothing to take too seriously. Jung might differ with them. Following his own inner leadings brought him to experience and describe a phenomenon of some, that some of us prefer to ignore. The possibility of an intelligent and responsive universe, acting and reacting in our interests. It is my experience that this is the case. And I have learned as a rule of thumb, never to ask whether you can do something. Say instead that you are doing it. Then fasten your seatbelt and the most remarkable things follow. God is efficient, the actress Juliana McCarthy always reminds me. I have many times marveled at the sleight of hand with which the universe delivers its treats. About six years ago, a play of mine was chosen for a large stage reading at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. I'd written the play with my friend Juliana in mind for the lead. She was my ideal casting. But when I arrived in Denver, casting was already set. As soon as I met my leading lady, I had a funny feeling that there was a bomb ticking. I mentioned this to the director, but was assured the actress was a consummate professional. Still, the feeling lingered in my stomach. Sure enough, a week before we were set to open, our leady lady abruptly resigned. From my play and from Painting Trenches, the play that was in mid-run. The Denver Center was stunned and very apologetic. They felt terrible but the damage my play would sustain by the abrupt departure. In a perfect world, who would you cast, they asked me. And I told them, Juliana McCarthy. Juliana was hired and flown in from L.A. And no sooner than the center's directors lay eyes on her work than they asked her not only to do my play, but also take over the run of painting churches for which she was brilliantly cast. God is showing off, I laughed at Juliana, very happy that she had a chance to do her play after all. In my experience, the universe falls in with worthy plans and most especially with festive and expansive ones. I've seldom conceived a delicious plan without being given the means to accomplish it. Understand that the what must come before the how. First choose what you would do. The how usually falls into place itself. All too often, when people ask about creative work, they emphasize strategy. Neophytes are advised of the Machiavellian, wow, Machiavellian. <laughs> The word was split on the page, but I'm not here to really, I'm not here to be a, a perfect enunciator of the words, but it's Machiavellian. <laughs> Neophytes advised of the Machiavellian devices they must employ to break into the field. I think this is a lot of rubbish. If you ask an artist how he got where he is, they will not describe breaking in, but instead will talk of a series of lucky breaks. A thousand unseen helping hands, as Joseph calls these breaks. I call them synchronicity. It is my contention that you can count on them. Remember that creativity is a tribal experience and that el tribal elders will initiate the gifted youngsters who cross their paths. 
This may sound like wishful thinking, but it is not. Sometimes an older artist will be moved to help out even against his or her own wishes. I don't know why I'm doing this for you, but... Again, I would say that some of the helping hands may be something more than human. We like to pretend it is hard to follow our heart's dreams. The truth is, it is difficult to avoid walking through the many doors that will open. Turn aside your dream and it will come back to you again. Get willing to follow it again, and a second mysterious door will swing open. The universe is prodigal in its support. We are miserly in what we accept. All gift horses are looked in the mouth and usually returned to sender. We say we are scared by failure, but what frightens us more is the possibility of success. Take a small step in the direction of a dream and watch the synchronous doors fly open. Seeing, after all, is believing. And if you see the results of your experiments, you will not need to believe me. Remember the maxim, leap and the net will appear. In his book, The Scottish Himalayan Expedition, W.H. Murray tells us his explorer's experience. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative or creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would one otherwise never have occurred. A whole stream of events, issues from the decision, raising one's favor, all manner of incidents and meetings, and material assistance which no man would have believed would have come his way. If you do not trust Murray, or me, you might want to trust Gioth, statesman, scholar, artist, man of the world. Gioth said had this to say of the will of providence assisting our efforts. Whatever you think you can do, or believe you can do, begin it. Action has magic, grace, and power in it. Action has magic, grace, and power in it. Alright, our next subchapter is shame. Some of you are thinking, if it were that easy to take an action, I wouldn't be reading this book or listening to this podcast. (laughs) Those of us who get bogged down by fear before action are usually being sabotaged by an older enemy, shame. Shame is a controlling device. Shaming someone is an attempt to prevent the person from behaving in a way that embarrasses us. Making a piece of art may feel a lot like telling a family secret. And secret telling by its very nature involves shame and fear. It asks the question, what will they think of me once they know this? This is a frightening question, particularly if we've ever been made to feel ashamed for our curiosities and explorations, social, sexual, spiritual. How dare you? Angry adults often rage in an innocent child who has stumbled onto a family secret. How dare you open your mother's jewelry box? How dare you open your father's desk drawer? How dare you open the bedroom door? How dare you go down to the cellar, up in the attic, into some dark place where we hide those things that we don't want you to know? The act of making art 
exposes a society to itself. Art brings things to light. It illuminates us. It sheds light on our lingering darkness. It casts a beam into the heart of our own darkness and says, see? When people do not want to see something, they get mad at the one who shows them. They kill the messenger. A child from an alcoholic home gets into trouble scholastically or sexually. The family is flagged as being troubled. And the child is made to feel shame for bringing shame into the family. But did the child bring shame? No. The child brought shameful things to light. The family shame predated and caused the child's distress. What will the neighbors think? Is a shame device aimed at continuing a conspiracy of illness. Art opens the closets, airs out the cellars and attics. It brings healing. But before a wound can heal, it must be seen. In this act of exposing the wound to air and light, the artist's act is often reacted to with shaming. Bad reviews are a prime source of shame for many artists, and the truth is, Many reviews do aim at creating shame in an artist. Shame on you. How dare you make that rotten piece of art. For the artist who endured childhood shaming over any form of neediness, any type of exploration, any expectation, shame may kick in even without the aid of shame-provoking review. If a child has ever been made to feel foolish for believing himself or herself or themselves to be talented, The act of actually finishing a piece of art will be fraught with internal shaming. Many artists begin a piece of work, get well along in it, and then find, as they near completion, that the work seems mysteriously drained of merit. It's no longer worth the trouble. To therapists, the surge of sudden disinterest, it doesn't matter, is a routine coping device employed to deny pain and ward off vulnerability. Adults who grew up in dysfunctional homes learn to use this coping device very well. They call it detachment, but it is actually a numbing out. He forgot my birthday. Oh well, no big deal. A lifetime of this experience in which needs for recognition are routinely dishonored teaches a young child that putting anything out for attention is a dangerous act. Dragging home the invisible bone is how one recovering artist characterized her vain search for an achievement big enough to gain approval in her family of origin. No matter how big a deal it was, they never seemed to take much notice. They always found something wrong with it. All A's and one B, and that B, got the attention. It is only natural that a young artist trying to flag parental attention by way of accomplishment, positive or negative, Faced with indifference or rage, such youngsters soon learn that no bone would really meet with a parental approval. Often, we are wrongly shamed as creatives. From the shaming, we learn that we are wrong to create. And once we learn this lesson, we forget it instantly. Buried under, it doesn't matter. The shame lives on, waiting to attach itself to our new efforts. The very act of attempting to make art creates shame. This is why many a great student film is never sent off to festivals where it can be seen. 
why good novels are destroyed or live in desk drawers. This is why plays do not get sent out, why shame or why talented acts are still conditioned. And this is why artists may feel shame at admitting their dreams. Shame is re-triggered in us as adults because our internal artist is always our creative child. Because of this, making a piece of art may cause us to feel shame. We don't make art with its eventual criticism foremost in mind. But criticism that asks a question like, how could you, can make an artist feel like a shame child. A well-meaning friend who constructively criticizes a beginning writer may very well end that writer. Let me be clear that not all criticism is shaming. In fact, even the most severe criticism, when it fairly hits the mark, is apt to be greeted by an internal aha if it shows the artist a new and valid path for work. Criticism that damages is that which disparages, dismisses, ridicules, or condemns. It is frequently vicious, but vague and difficult to refute. This is the criticism that damages. Shamed by such criticism, an artist may become blocked or stop sending work out into the world. A perfectionist friend, teacher, or critic, like a perfectionist parent who nitpicks at missing commas, can dampen the ardor of a young artist who is just learning to let it rip. Because of this, as artists, we must learn to be very self-protective. Does this mean no criticism? No. It means learning where and when to seek out right criticism. As artists, we must learn when criticism is appropriate and from whom. Not only the source, but the timing is very important here. A first draft is seldom appropriately shown to any but the most gentle and discerning eye. It often takes another artist to see the embryonic work that is trying to sprout. The inexperienced or harsh critical eye, instead of nurturing the shoot of art into being, may shoot it down instead. As artists, we cannot patrol all the criticism we will receive, and we cannot make our professional critics more healthy or more loving or more constructive than they are. But we can learn to comfort, comfort our artist child over unfair criticism. We can learn to find friends with whom we can safely vent our pain. And we can learn not to deny and stuff our feelings when we've been artistically savaged. Art requires a safe hatchery. Ideally, artists find this first in their family, then in their school, and finally in a community of friends and supporters. This idea is seldom a reality. As artists, we must learn to create our own safe environments. We must learn to protect our artist child from shame. We do this by diffusing our childhood shamings, getting them on the page, and sharing them with a trusted, non-shaming other. By telling our shame secrets around our art, and telling them through our art, we release ourselves and others from darkness. This release is not always welcomed. <sighs> we must learn that when our art reveals a secret of the human soul, those watching it may try to shame us for making it. It's terrible, they may say, attacking the work when the work itself is actually fine. And this can be very confusing. 
we are told shame on you and feel it, we must learn to recognize that shame is a recreation of childhood shames. We know that work is good. I thought that was good work. Could I be kidding myself? Maybe that critic is right. Why did I ever have the nerve to think? And the downward spiral begins. At these times, we must be very firm with ourselves, not pick up the first doubt. We simply cannot allow the first negative thinking to take hold. Taking in the first doubt is like picking up the first drink for an alcoholic. Once in our system, the doubt will take on another doubt and another. And doubting thoughts can be stopped, but it takes vigilance to do it. Maybe that critic was right. And boom, we must go into action. You are a good artist, a brave artist. You are doing well. It's good that you did the work. It is good that you did the work. When God's Will, the romantic film comedy I directed, debuted in Washington, D.C., it was a homecoming for me. My earliest journalism work had been for the Washington Post, and I was hoping for a hometown girl makes good reception. But in the reviews printed prior to the opening, I did not get it. The Post sent a young woman who watched an entire movie about theater people and then wrote that it was about movie people. She added that most of my dialogue had been stolen from Casablanca, and that I wondered what movie she had seen, not the one I made. My movie had 40-odd theater jokes and a one-line joke about Casablanca. Those were the facts, but they didn't do me any good. I was mortified, shamed, ready to almost die. Because the antidote for shame is self-love and self-praise, this is what I did. I went through for a walk through Rock Creek Park. I prayed. I made a list for myself of past compliments and good reviews. I did not tell myself it doesn't matter. But I did tell my artist self, you will heal. And I showed up for my opening. And it was a lot more successful than my reviews. Three months later, my film was chosen for a prestigious European festival. They offered to fly me over to pay my expenses to showcase my film. I hesitated. The Washington shaming had done its slow and poisonous work, and I was afraid to go. But I knew better than to not go. My years in artistic recovery had taught me to just show up, so when I did... My film sold at a great price. I want a headline in variety. I shared the headline because the irony of it was not lost on me. God's will hit in Munich, it read. It is God's will for us to be creative. It is God's will for us to be creative. Dealing with criticism. It is important to be able to sort useful criticism from the other kind. Often we need to do the sorting out for ourselves without the benefit of the public vindication. As artists, we are far more able to do this sorting than people might suspect. Pointed criticism, if accurate, often gives the artist an inner sense of relief. Mm-hmm. So that's what's wrong with it. Useful criticism ultimately leaves us with one more puzzled piece for our work. 
Useless criticism, on the other hand, leaves us with a feeling of being bludgeoned. As a rule, it is withering and shaming in tone, ambiguous in content, personal and accurate, or blanket in its condemnations. There is nothing to be gleaned from irresponsible criticism. You are dealing with an inner child. Artistic child abuse creates rebellion, creates block. All that can be done with abusive criticism is to heal from it. There are certain rules of the road useful in dealing with any form of criticism. Number one, receive the criticism all the way through and get it over with. Number two, jot down notes to yourself on what concepts or phrases bother you. Number three, jot down notes on what concepts or phrases seem useful. Number four, do something very nurturing for yourself. Read an old good review or recall the compliment. Number five, remember that even if you've made a truly rotten piece of art, it may be a necessary stepping stone to your next work. Art matures spasmodically and requires ugly duckling growth stages. Number six, look at the criticism again. Does it remind you of any criticism from your past, particularly shaming childhood criticisms? Acknowledge to yourself that the current criticism is triggering grief over a long-standing wound. Number seven, write a letter to the critic. Not to be mailed, most probably. Defend your work and acknowledge what was helpful, if anything, in the criticism offered. Number eight, get back on the horse. Make an immediate commitment to do something creative. And number nine is do it. Creativity is the only cure for criticism. All right, we have an exercise here called detective work, and truth be told, we're going to skip it because I'm here to read you the chapter, not read you the exercises. Um, so if you're curious about that exercise, you can definitely go read the book. Um, it's probably most of the way through week three. There's lots of free PDF versions online. If you're looking for a version, you can email me. I've got one to send you. Um... But yeah, we're going to move forward into growth, which is our last little sector before ending this chapter. Growth is an erratic forward movement, two steps forward, one step back. Remember that and be very gentle with yourself. A creative recovery is a healing process. You're capable of great things on Tuesday, but on Wednesday you might slide backwards. This is normal. Growth occurs in spurts, and you will lay dormant sometimes. Do not be discouraged. Think of it as resting. Very often, a week of insights will be followed by a week of sluggishness. The morning pages will seem pointless. They are not. And what you are learning to do, writing them even when you are tired and they seem dull, is to rest on the page. This is very important. Marathon runners suggest you log 10 slow miles for every fast one. The same holds true for creativity. In this sense, easy does it is actually modus operandi. It means easy accomplishes it. 
If you will hew to a practice of writing three pages every morning and doing one kind thing for yourself every day, you will begin to notice a slight lightness of heart. Practice being kind to yourself in small, concrete ways. Look at your refrigerator. Are you feeding yourself nicely? Do you have socks? An extra set of sheets? And what about a new houseplant? A thermos for the long drive to work? Allow yourself to pitch out some of your old ragged clothes. You don't have to keep everything. The expression, God helps those who help themselves, may take on a new and very different meaning. Where in the past it translated, God helps only those who earn it, it will now come to signify the amazing number of small free griffs. Griffs. Small free griffs. The number of small free gifts the creator showers on those who are helping themselves to a little bounty. And if you do one nice thing a day for yourself, God will do two more. Be alert for support and encouragement from unexpected quarters. Be open to receiving gifts from odd channels, free tickets, a free trip, an offer to buy you dinner, a new-to-you old couch, and practice saying yes to such help. The scientifically inclined among you may want to make it a good, thorough list of clothes you wish you had. And very often, the items in the list come into your possession at disconcerting speed. Just try it. Experiment. And more than anything else, experiment with solitude. You will need to make a commitment to quiet time. Try to acquire a habit of checking in with yourself. Several times a day, just take a beat and ask yourself how you are feeling. Listen to your answer. Respond kindly. If you are doing something very hard, promise yourself a break and a treat afterward. Yes, I am asking you to baby yourself. We believe that to be artists, we must be tough, cynical, and intellectually chilly. Leave that to the critics. As creative being, you will be more productive when coaxed than when bullied. So the gist of this chapter is <laughs> very ask and you shall receive. Um, and I think that if that's not just true of the external world, but also what is it that we are asking of ourselves? Are we asking for more energy? Are we asking for willpower? Is there a part of us that we can say, hey, I'm going to surrender the will of this over to God and God can do it through me. It can be maybe writing the morning pages or going for a healing honey walk maybe it's simply getting your taxes done or making yourself a meal maybe it's sitting by a window and listening to the rain and giving yourself time to actually embrace to recharge and I think that something that's important here too is to not limit what you're asking for Right? Ask for a book deal. Ask for a raise. The universe might internally know that we want it, but the world doesn't know that we want it until we ask for it. And the universe cannot respond through the world until there is something there for it to respond to. So, with that, I offer you that idea of what would happen 
if I allowed the universe to live through the world, what would happen? And what am I open to happening if I let the world know how I need the universe to come into it? I also like to ask myself, what do I need to be? Who, who do I need to be? And can I have the grace to allow myself to be that person and embody that strength, that grace, forgiving, allowance, nurturing, whatever it is? Remember, this is the week of recovering a sense of power. One of the quotes on this page is, there is vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost. Also this idea that our sense of power is a gift coming through us from the world and that maybe our gift doesn't have to be just for us. Maybe it can be for those around us too. If you're externally motivated like I am. Once again, my name is Forrest Greenwell. This is Alter of a Cowgirl. You can find me on Instagram. You can also find my personal Instagram at cowgirloracle. Hope you're having a great day. I hope this receives you well and I'm sending you love. Thanks for listening.